Who here this morning can remember their first experience of public speaking? A few hands going up. If you're anything like me, it's something that you try to forget. As inevitably, it didn't go exactly to plan. My first experience, like many of you, probably was when I was at school. We'd been given a present, we had to give a presentation about a book that we'd read, which had to last for at least 10 minutes, and was being graded by our head of English, Mr. Malloy, a man who could terrify even the hard, most hardened of criminals. It came to my turn, and uh, being alphabetically last in the alphabet, I'd kind of seen everyone, all my peers go before me, and uh, kind of get through it. And I'd been left to worry about what I was going to say. Because, like most teenagers, I hadn't exactly prepared thoroughly. I walked to the front of the classroom and began. However, for the next ten minutes or so, I don't think anything that resembled the English language came from my lips. There was a lot of stuttering and stumbling over words. And the whole experience felt like 10 hours, let alone 10 minutes. I wonder how many of you can relate to a situation like that. Well, today we're going to be looking back at a pastor's first ever sermon. Peter's first sermon. Last week we were thinking about that amazing day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came and he filled the disciples. We heard about how the Spirit was poured all over them. And they were suddenly able to do miraculous things. This was Peter's first experience of public speaking. And he was able to speak in different tongues. And if you're anything like me, you know that that first experience of public speaking is hard enough to speak English, let alone any other language. However, that amazing day continued. And today we're going to be thinking about Peter, who was a man who came from absolutely nothing. He was a simple fisherman. A man who had had his confidence knocked in his betrayal of Jesus. A man who had probably never had any real experience of standing up preaching God's word. Now, either this man had ice water flowing through his veins and was scared of nothing, which we know isn't true. Or the Holy Spirit was guiding him and leading him in every single word he was saying, directing him totally to, del- to deliver this knockout sermon, the most succinct, the most amazing sermon that anyone has ever preached. And this sermon led to over 3,000 people being baptised. How many sermons have we seen preached that have had that kind of impact? I don't think there's many. <laughs> a story is told of two men who got into a conversation on a boat returning from India. One was an English sportsman, and the other was a missionary. A sportsman said, I've been in India for 25 years, and I never saw one of the natives converted. That's odd, answered the missionary. Did you ever see a tiger? Hundreds of them, was the reply. And I've shot dozens in the hunt. Well, I've been in India for many years, said the missionary, but I've never seen a tiger Under the power of the gospel of Christ, I've seen the hundreds of natives of India turn to the Saviour. You see, one loved hunting 
and was looking for tigers. The other loved individuals who needed God and was more was looking for ways to bring them to Jesus. Likewise, a guest preacher came into a church on a Sunday in midwinter. The day was unusually stormy and bitterly cold, and he found the building absolutely empty. However, he took his seat in the pulpit and waited. One man came in and sat at the back. The, man, the preacher looked at his watch, and he decided to get up and preach his message. At its close, the man in the pew departed without waiting to face the minister. And about 20 years later, that same preacher was approached by a stranger. Do you remember, he asked, preaching years ago to just one man? Yes, I do indeed, replied Dr. Lyman Beecher. If you're that man, I've wanted to meet you ever since. I am that man, was the answer. That sermon saved my soul and led me into the ministry. The converts of your sermon, sir, are all over Ohio. The gospel changes lives. It's effective, just as God intended it to be. As we know, after Jesus' crucifixion, Peter kind of took the role of a lead disciple. He kind of took on this role. Peter was the brash, eager disciple. He was the one that we can probably best relate to out of the lot. He was the first to walk on the water, the first to jump to Jesus' defense with his sword drawn. And as we will see today, he was the first to deliver a gospel message to the crowds in Jerusalem. His message was easy to understand, to the point, and it used strong scriptural basis, which is everything a gospel message should strive to achieve. Often today, we're almost too apologetic of the gospel. We water down our messages in order to reach the unchurched or those seeking God. The premise of delivering messages to those such people in a way they can identify is good, but we are perhaps at danger of only ever presenting a fluffy, nice version of the gospel, which, although maybe feel good, only really shows one side of the story. As we heard from our reading this morning, Peter's message packed a punch. He delivered a clear Christian message and presented the truth in love. He communicated the need for a saviour and presented that saviour to them in the form of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at six points today as we continue our study of the book of Acts. The refutes, the explanation, the attestation, the glorification, the realisation and the declaration. Looking again at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, it says these words, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. We know that as the disciples were gathered in the upper room, the Spirit came down and filled them. And boys, by this, they started to preach the good news. We don't know whether this came from the upper room itself, whether they were standing on the rooftops, or whether they were at street level. But we do know that messages were often delivered from an elevated position. A key aspect of this part of the passage is that of unity, and that's the unity of the early church. The apostles stood as one and addressed the crowd. 
That took bravery, considering how hostile some of the crowd had been. After all, this was the same crowd a couple of weeks earlier who were shouting for the release of Barabbas at Jesus' expense. But under the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit, the disciples were able to proclaim the Lord freely without worry, even though they were putting their lives on the line. They were already seen as blasphemers. Peter addressed the whole of the crowd gathered, and that included those from foreign lands who were gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost celebrations. Peter gets up, and he's emboldened by the Holy Spirit, and he shouts, hey, you, look up here. Listen to what we have to say. The gospel, the people, sorry, accused the disciples of being drunk. Their hearts had been hardened to the gospel message following the crucifixion of Jesus. But Peter refutes this, and he gives proof, saying that it was only the third hour of the day, meaning it was about 9 a.m. No one was drunk at this time of day, especially not Jews on the day of a religious feast. Peter had refuted this accusation. Peter's first action was to correct an error, a task he completed flawlessly. And this allowed him to move on to his next point, which was to offer an explanation for the miracles the crowd had witnessed that day. Acts 2, 16 to 21 says this, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my manservants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirits in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood, before coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Saviour shall be saved. Peter starts his explanation by quoting scripture. What better way to start? Whenever someone steps up to the pulpit to explain God, it's best to let God do the talking through his word. He starts quoting a passage of scripture found in our Bibles in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through to 32. And the first part tells us that in the final days, God will pour out his spirit on the flesh, meaning the Holy Spirit. We saw the coming of the Holy Spirit last week, and he, the Spirit, filled all the disciples gathered in the house that they were staying at. This is an important part to note, that the Spirit filled all of them who were gathered there. The prophet then goes on to talk about the miraculous acts that can occur when the Spirit is poured out. Prophesy is mentioned twice in this passage. But what does that mean? The English Dictionary uh, defines prophecy as a prediction of what will happen in the future. So is it still relevant today? Like tongues, it's a gift given by the Holy Spirit. But how can we discern that what we're hearing is actually a prophecy? Well, firstly, it has to line up with Scripture. And secondly, it has to be true. Some people go around churches claiming that they have a word from their Lord, when really it's a word from their imagination. I watched a terrifying program during the week about churches in Africa who were accusing young people, children as young as five, of witchcraft through the Spirit. 
They were performing violent, terrible acts on these children to try and get rid of the witchcraft and to try and break the so-called telephone that was inside these children and adults. And this telephone was supposed to connect them to other witches. You can see how the spirit can be misinterpreted and read wrong and how damaging it can be. We have to discern it and use the gift properly. I've known people, however, that have the gift and have used it under the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit and the Scripture. And they have been a blessing to everyone around them. We believe the gifts of the Spirit are for us today. We, however, need to use them under the guidance of the Scripture and as a benefit to the church. Now, verses 17 and 18 have to do with the church as it is today. We're living in what is called the church age now. Jesus has risen from the dead, and the Spirit is with us, and it gives us its power. Now, at some point in the future, Jesus is going to return for his bride, the church. Those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Savior will be caught up to join him. We need to pay special attention to verse 21, which says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What this means is salvation for everybody who accepts the true message of gospel salvation and of Jesus. No one is cut off from the salvation of, by God's choice, but simply their own. If they can't accept the true message of the gospel salvation, it won't be theirs. But if they can accept that message, it will come to them. Salvation will be theirs. I pray that even if you haven't made that decision, even if you haven't accepted that, by the time you leave this service today, that will be something that you want to do. Now Peter has spoken about a saviour. It's time to introduce him. The most important thing that Peter had to do in his message was to tell the people about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Peter declared Jesus as the Lord to them, among, along with all the miracles God did through him to attest to his divine nature. He was proving that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that the nation of Israel had been waiting for. The crowd had seen and heard Jesus. Peter describes Jesus as a suffering servant, especially in verse 23, where he describes Jesus being crucified at the hands of lawless men. This was foretold in scripture, and Peter knew that his hearers would know this. Peter continued to build his case for Christ. A lot of pastors and teachers teach the truth without love. Jesus never did that, though, and Peter wasn't doing that here either. After accusing them of having a hand in Jesus' death, he gives them hope. He tells them about the risen Lord. Peter tells that Jesus was raised up by God as he was. He then uses a peculiar phrase to describe the resurrection. Peter says that God loosed the pains of death. This is a very peculiar phrase. Loosed the pains of death in the original Greek. The pain of death describes childbirth in, in the original Greek. And what's peculiar here is that the death is being described as not being able to hold back Jesus from being raised from the dead. He was not held by it because he was the Messiah. 
the saviour and the king that they had been waiting for. This was truly a miracle, even more so than the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. And describing the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, Peter was giving hope to the people gathered. Finally, we come to the realisation and the declaration. They They were following Peter here. They were keeping up with what he was saying. The Jewish crowd knew the scriptures as they'd been taught them from a very early age. Peter then confronts them with the truth of the risen Lord in verse 32. He proclaims the resurrection boldly, along with the other apostles, because they had all been eyewitnesses to the fact. Not only were they witnesses to his resurrection, they were also eyewitnesses to his ascension and his promise of the Holy Spirit. We saw this back in chapter 1. Peter goes on to bring his message full circle here in verse 33, telling them that the Spirit had been sent by Jesus, alluding back to the miracle of the crowd hearing the different languages which was foretold by the prophet Joel. As we saw in verses 16 through to 18, Peter was speaking in love and in truth, and he was preaching a message of hope. This led to 3,000 people accepting this message and declaring Jesus as their saviour. They were encouraged to be baptised to mark their new life with Jesus, and they do this. These 3,000 converts with a start of something big, something we are still a part of over 2,000 years later, the church. Consider this, a young man whose father is a carpenter grows up working in his father's shop. One day, he puts down his tools and he walks out of his father's shop. He starts preaching on the street corners and in the nearby countryside, walking from place to place preaching all the while. Even though he's not an ordained minister, he does this for three years. Then he's arrested, tried and convicted. There is no court of appeal. So he is executed at the age of 33, along with two common thieves. Those in charge of his execution roll dice to see who gets his clothing. The only possessions he has, his family cannot afford a burial place for him, so he is interred in a borrowed tomb. End of story? No. This uneducated, propertyless man, who left no written word for 2,000 years, has had a greater effect on the world than all the rulers, kings, emperors, and all the conquerors, generals and admirals, all the scholars, scientists, and philosophers who ever lived. All of them put together. How do we explain that? We can't, unless he really was who he said he was. 2,000 odd years later, his church is still here, still going strong, and the Holy Spirit is still filling people with the same passion with which Peter's first sermon instilled in them.